to say a couple of things before we pray and move into um, our study for today. Last week was our week of Vacation Bible School. We had over 400 enrolled. We had 13 children who came to Christ. We had one who wanted to get uh, his life back uh, on track uh, with the Lord. So there was 13 salvations and one uh, re-devotion of their lives to the Lord. Uh, many other children were impacted by the teaching they got this week. Uh, many gospel seeds were planted in the hearts of, of uh, young people, and so I'm grateful for what God did. I'm thankful for everyone who worked in VBS last week. Every person who volunteered was a vital part of those 13 children coming to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. You are a vital part of impacting the sanctification and growth of children and the planting of gospel seeds in the hearts of those children. Without you, we could not have done what was done this past week. I'm thankful for each person that worked. And if you were... Uh, if you worked last week in VBS, would you stand for just a moment? I know some of you don't want to do that, but would you just stand up just for a moment? If you worked in VBS last week. <clears throat> Thank you so very much for your work for the kingdom of God. Miss Ann was here each day. She fell week before last in her office, tripped over a box, fell in her office, and broke her kneecap. So that's why you hadn't seen her around much. So she's been... She was here in a wheelchair, and uh, they would just roll her up on the stage, prop her leg up <clears throat> while she did her teaching time, and then she would have to go home. She, it would wear her out being here. That's why she was not able to be at the family night on Thursday night when uh, families were gathered for the children to sing what they, the songs they've been learning. So we want to pray for, for her. Uh, Valerie McLean stepped up and did so much to try to get things ready for that week. Um, and also getting ready for camp coming up and all that. So we're grateful for her, recognized her, and uh, we gave her a gift card on um, Thursday night just thanking her for the work that she's been doing. So I, I'm just grateful for all who are just willing to give of themselves. Some, of, some took time off work to be here. Some took partial days off just to be here in the mornings and make sure things were going well. Uh, thankful for the team that did that. Dustin Castell is one of those who did that. And took two or three mornings off just to be here to help with registration. And uh, so just very, very grateful for all of you and uh, your work for the kingdom of God. Next Sunday, the fourth weekend, of course, it's Sunday the 2nd. But as we typically do on that weekend, because so many are away on, on vacation, we do a combined service. So we're planning on doing that next week. So next Sunday, no connect groups. There'll be one combined service in here, 1030. I look forward to continuing our study of Hebrews 7 with you uh, on that day. So that's next Sunday. Child care will be from, let's see, uh, under kindergarten and down to bed babies. And everybody else will come in here and we'll gather for that combined service. Now, we do those things several times a year at key strategic times, and they are really a blessing at times uh, because we just kind of, we're together. Some folks who don't get to see other folks get to see those folks uh, on that day, and so it's just good for us to do that. And um, so that'll be next Sunday, so keep that in mind. Well, let's pray, and we're going to dig into our study. Heavenly Father, I'm thankful to be here today. I thank you for each person in this room. I thank you, Lord, for those watching online now. I thank you for what you did last week in Vacation Bible School. Praise you, Lord, for the saving of souls. Thank you, Lord, for impacting lives. Thank you for using so many people, Lord God. 
to help minister last week. Lord, I pray we're able to connect with families, individuals that don't know you through what took place last week. So I pray for doors to continually be opened to reach people. Lord, I pray now that you will enable us to hear from you. Once again, Lord, I've had a week that's been a struggle in preparation for this moment. I do not take this moment lightly. And I ask now for the touch of God that I might be able to accurately deliver the Word of God and that we might be able to hear it well and apply it. So I commit this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 7 verses 1 through 10 is my text for this morning. And I'm going to be speaking on this subject, the ultimate high priest of the order of Melchizedek. And we're at a really crucial point in the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews is making a case. Let me just kind of give you a quick recap of where we've been. Today, uh, we're again in that crucial point of the book of Hebrews. The original recipients were embattled Jewish Christians. They were ethnic Jews. They had believed that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. They had responded to the gospel. They had received Christ. They had been converted. But now there are cultural pressures that they're facing. Many of them uh, are ostracized from their families. Their own families are disowning them because they've chosen to follow Jesus. And they didn't believe, many of them did not believe, obviously, that Jesus was Messiah. So they're probably being disinherited, many of them. They're facing that from their own people group. And then they're also facing a, a, an opposition with the outward culture as well. There's a temptation for them to slip back into the comforts of Judaism for the moment to try to escape some of this opposition and persecution. So the writer of Hebrews took up pen by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write to this group of Christians and encourage them to stay faithful to Jesus, to endure to persevere. They needed to understand the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first three verses, the book of Hebrews there in chapter 1, that great prologue, describes the Lord Jesus Christ in several ways. He is described, first of all, as the heir of all things. That is, He is over all things. He's inherited it all, and He's over it all. So He is heir of all things. He is described as the creator of the universe. He is described as the sustainer of the universe. He upholds all things by the word of His power. He is a display of the glory of God. He is the exact express image of the person of God Himself because He is God the Son. He is Savior. He saves people from sin. He is sovereign. He is at the right hand of the majesty on high. Those three verses set the tone for the entire book. He exalts Christ in such a way. Why would anyone think it wise? Why would anyone think it right to walk away from a deep devotion to following the Lord Jesus Christ? He is the one that meets our needs. He is the one that's superior to all things. He is superior even to the system of worship through the Jews. And the writer instructed them to be faithful to Jesus because He is greater than angels. He is greater than Moses. He is greater than Abraham. He is greater than the uh, Levitical priesthood. He is greater than the tabernacle. He is greater than the sacrificial system. He is supreme over all. Matter of fact, all those things point to Him. Why would you go back just to the mere symbol? 
when you have the reality. It's what he's saying to these Christians. And so he begins in chapter 2, verse 17, and he talks about how that the Lord Jesus Christ is the great high priest. He talks about how he makes propitiation for the sins of the people. And then we get over into chapter 4 and verse 14. He's uh, called the high priest again who sympathizes with our weaknesses. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, he begins to talk more in depth about the high priestly ministry of Christ. And then he pauses. He stops. And from chapter 5, verse 11, on through chapter 6 and verse 20, he deals with the problem that he fears will prevent these Christians from understanding the deeper things about the high priesthood of the Lord Jesus. So he addresses that. And then uh, by the Holy Spirit's inspiration in chapter 7, he begins to explain in depth why that Christ is superior to the Levitical priesthood. And these first 10 verses sort of set things up for what he does in the rest of the chapter here in chapter 7. So let's read these verses, and then we'll look at what they're teaching. I'm going to actually pick up reading in verse 19 of chapter 6. It's not going to be on the screen, but we'll pick up in chapter 7. Those verses will be. But this helps us with the context as I read this to you today. Verse 19 of chapter 6 says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. Now that, that's a, you know, that, that's a, um, an allusion to the temple. In the temple, you would walk into the holy place, and then behind the veil would be the most holy place. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where the presence of God was said to, to dwell. That's where the priest entered once a year to sprinkle the mercy seat with the sacrifice, with blood of the sacrifice for the sins of the people of Israel. And so it's speaking of the Lord Jesus going behind that veil to present himself as that living sacrifice for us. Verse 20, where the forerunner has entered for us even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's the transition verse that gets us back into the deep things he's wanting to talk to them about. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated, that is his name being translated, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like. Now that word like is key to understanding who Melchizedek is. Made like the Son of God. Remains a priest continually. Now consider. That word consider is the only imperative verb in this text. There's a reason for this. The Spirit of God is giving us an understanding of what needs to happen by way of application. So keep that in mind. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he, whose genealogy is not derived from them, received tithes from Abraham 
and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, here's the main idea of the message that I want to bring to you today. The greatness of Melchizedek points to the greatness of Jesus, our high priest and king. You ever heard this statement? The grass is not always greener on the other side of the fence. You ever heard that? There was a book. I don't remember now who, who wrote this book. Was it Joni Erickson Todd? Was that who it was? Somebody wrote a book one time. So that's because the grass is greener because it's growing over a septic tank. <laughs> well, here's what happens sometimes. We look at our lives and we look at the circumstances of our lives and we start thinking, you know, um, I'd kind of like to be in their circumstances. I think they're a lot better off than I am at this point. Now, we, we do that having no earthly idea what that person is really going through so often. And sometimes we'll think, you know, if I, if I had this or I was doing that, then I would just be much better off than I am right now. Well, these Jewish Christians were sort of in that boat. And they were saying, you know, that they're kind of like the children of Israel who came out of Egypt. And that's been used as an illustration throughout this text so far. And they, they were thinking, you know, it might be better off back in Judaism. It's a more accepted religion by the Roman state, and certainly we won't be facing the persecution that we're facing by our own people. So it just might be better off at this point in time for us to quit being so devoted to Jesus and then just slip back into our Judaistic practices and things would get better for us. And maybe we think that at times. Maybe there's times that you and I have these thoughts that come into our mind because we look at the culture around us now and those of us who have a few years on us remember when times were a lot different than they are now and we see the growing hostility toward the things of the Lord in our culture and our society and sometimes we might think, you know, it, it, it'd just be easier on us if we just, you know, wasn't so devoted, wasn't so focused and so vocal about Jesus and we just sort of adopted some of the things the world is adopting right now and we'd be more accepted by them and wouldn't be on the outs with them and wouldn't be made fun of by them and and so there's that there's this thought it would be better off to kind of you know identify with them more and not be so devoted to Jesus and that would be a very foolish thing to do because we'd be walking away from the greater for the lesser. And that's the point being made here by the writer of Hebrews to these early Christians, and we can learn a lot from that. And so to make his case, the writer of Hebrews uses an historical figure to illustrate how Jesus is superior to the priesthood of Judaism, which was absolutely central to the system of worship in Judaism. You cannot, you cannot have sacrifices offered for sins if you don't have priests. Priests were mediators between God and man and man to God, representing man to God. So it was vital for the system of worship. And so what he does here is he begins to show how futile it is to put your hopes in the Levitical priesthood over the high priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does that 
by this figure, this man named Melchizedek. He is a mysterious figure. A lot of mystery swirls around him, and there's a lot of uh, ideas about who he is. He only appears two places in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 14, beginning in verse 17, he appears also in that great messianic psalm, Psalm 110, particularly there in verse 4, which is quoted uh, in the text of Hebrews chapter 7. Who is Melchizedek? In some of our research this week, y'all may not find this funny. I did, so forgive me if you don't find it funny. But someone had, had, uh, had, had developed a message, and so they... Uh, actually, Jennifer found this as she's uh, researching some of the ideas about um, Melchizedek, and the title of the message was, Who the Heck is Melchizedek? <laughs> so, anyway, I said, I'm going to try that title. No, I don't think I will. <clears throat> but anyway, who is Melchizedek? Well, there's various views about who Melchizedek is. Some believe he is some sort of divine being. Some believe he's actually the Holy Spirit. Some believe that he is an angelic being, perhaps Michael the archangel. Some believe he is Shem, the son of Noah. Some believe he's some type of heavenly figure, um, not an angel, but some type of heavenly creature or being. And he is inferior to Jesus, but superior to angels. Some believe it is the pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Some believe this is a Canaanite king priest of Salem, a true worshiper of the true God. Now, of all these ideas, and there are many more, I mean, I've just given you a little snapshot of what people believe about him. I, there's only two that could be possibly biblically supported. One is the idea that he is the pre-incarnate Christ, and this is a Christophany an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. Others believe, and this can be supported biblically, and this is the position that I actually take, that this is a true human being, this is a Canaanite king who is a priest and king living in the land of Cana, and he is a true worshiper of God. Now, there's some things from the text that help me understand the position that I take. Melchizedek is what's called a type. A type has an antitype. What a type does is like a symbol that has real circumstances around that symbol, and there's real lessons to learn from that situation, but it also, that figure, that type, points to something more. For instance, the temple that was built by the Jews pointed to the very real dwelling place of God. In Numbers chapter 21, um, there was an event that took place where the people of Israel who came out of Egypt were in the wilderness. They were complaining against God. And because they murmured against God, God sent among them vipers, snakes. And they were biting these um, Israelites, and they're being put to death as an act of discipline and punishment because of their rebellion against God. And the Lord told Moses to fashion and make a bronze serpent, put it on a standard, and lift that standard up, and all who looked to that standard would live. 
Well, in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, the Word of God uh, teaches us, the Lord Jesus said, and he, he, he said that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, the Son of Man also must be lifted up, and those who believe in Him will have eternal life. And so what that bronze serpent being lifted up was a type of is the fact that Jesus Christ will be lifted up one day on the cross to die for the sin of the world, and those who look to Him in belief will live. The very Lamb of the sacrificial system and the, under the old covenant pointed to the Lamb of God, the ultimate Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world as John the Baptist proclaimed in John chapter 1 and verse 28. Melchizedek is this kind of thing. He's a type. He's a real person with real circumstances, but because of the way he is presented in Scripture, he becomes a type that points to Jesus and his ultimate priesthood. Now, here's some things that's said about Melchizedek. Melchizedek is king of Salem. Salem was Jerusalem, the ancient Jerusalem. The word Salem means peace. So that's why he's called in these verses king of peace. He's also called the king of righteousness. Guess what his name means? Melech, meaning king. And then uh, Kadek speaks of righteousness. You put those two together, his name means king of righteousness in the Hebrew. He is called the priest of the Most High God. This is one of the most intriguing things to me about him. He's called priest of the Most High God. Now remember, he's a Canaanite king. So that means he's living in the land of Canaan that is full of all types of false worship. But in the midst of all of that false worship, there's also the worship of the one true God taking place. <clears throat> now that, that's incredible to me. It also lets me know this. <clears throat> he's called king of the Most High God. And what that title did is it exalted him and the true God that he served above <clears throat> every other false God in that land. <clears throat> By the way, that also means that there is a priesthood that predates the Levitical priesthood. <clears throat> and that's the point that the writer of Hebrews is making here in this text, because remember, he's saying, you don't, you don't need to go back to them. That's an inferior priesthood to the great high priest. It's said of him in this text that Abraham met him while he was returning from the slaughter of kings. Now, if you'll remember, <clears throat> in Genesis chapter 14, we find this account. And, and we give you some background on what's happened here. There are four Mesopotamian kings that have come against five Canaanite kings. And the four Mesopotamian kings defeated the five Canaanite kings, and they carried off a large plunder of stuff, valuables, including people that were to be enslaved, and that included also Abraham's nephew, Lot. And so then uh, Abraham rallied his own little private army, and he went after them, and God gave him victory. By the grace of God, he defeated the four Mesopotamian kings. He, he reclaimed the valuables. He freed Lot, and he was bringing them back, and he was met by the king of Sodom. And then he also was met by this Melchizedek. So look with me, and, or listen, as I read in Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 20. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. 
after his return from the defeat of Kedolamer and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. So he blessed Abram, and Abram paid a tithe to him. Verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 7 says that it's very clear that the greater blesses the lesser. Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. Verse 4 says that the very um, top of his spoils were, were to go to Melchizedek. And this is interesting because there is no command that we know of that Abraham was to do this, but he did so because he understood the higher ranking of Melchizedek and who Melchizedek represented. He had honored his priesthood and paid a tithe to him. Matter of fact, this is one of the things, and I'll get into this in just a moment, that the, the writer of Hebrews uses to really press home the inferiority of the Levitical priesthood compared to Christ. Another thing that's said about him in this text is, <clears throat> and this is where people sometimes begin to say, okay, this has got to be some kind of supernatural being here. This must be the pre-incarnate Christ because of this description. <clears throat> But it's this description that actually makes him the type that he is and points him to Christ, <clears throat> but it does not mean that he is Christ. And I'll show you that in just a second. Without father or mother, he's described, without genealogy, having neither beginning nor end of days nor end of life, but he's made like the Son of God. That word like there is a word that means a copy. And again, this likeness is, is from Genesis it's not from the man himself. It's the way he's presented in Scripture that makes him that type of Jesus. <clears throat> and then it says here that he remains a priest continually. The Old Testament text does not list his father or mother, does not list who Melchizedek's, as we'd say in the South, mom and daddy is. <laughs> it does not tell you when he was born, does not tell you when he died. He did die. He was born. He did have a mom and daddy. It does not say that he has a, a genealogy, but he has a perpetual priesthood. It's a continual priesthood. Now, why is he saying that? Because that's exactly the opposite of the Levitical priesthood. You had to be a descendant of Levi, in particular, a descendant of Aaron, to be in the priesthood. You had to have an extensive genealogical proof that that's, that that's who you descended from to be a part of that priesthood. You had a limited priesthood because you're going to get where you cannot serve or you're going to die, then it has to be passed on to someone else. If you're a high priest, you cannot serve past the age of 50. There's a limitation on that. But what's being communicated here, there was no limitation on Melchizedek's priesthood, and that, that equates as a symbol of the very facts about the Lord Jesus Christ and His priesthood. And then we see that he's described as receiving a tithe from Abraham. Again, that is the main argument here that shows the superiority of Melchizedek over the Levitical priesthood. Now, back to verse 4. Remember, I told you when I read the text to you, verse 4 is key. It says, consider. 
That is, to set your mind on to understand and observe. It's a command of Scripture. You focus in on the greatness of this man. You get focused here because if you do, you'll understand something. You'll begin to understand the futility of walking away from Jesus. You'll begin to see the great superiority of Jesus Christ when you get focused on the greatness of Melchizedek because as great as he is, he's a rank above Abraham, the father of the Hebrews, the very Levitical priesthood that was within the body of Abraham at the time he tithed to Melchizedek, tithed to this man, as great as his spiritual ranking is, he is nothing in comparison with the Lord Jesus Christ, the great high priest. And that's what he's focusing, that's what he's stressing here. And this typology will communicate several things about the Lord Jesus. He is, first of all, the ultimate high priest, but he's not just the priest, he's also king. Also stresses to us that he is completely righteous. Melchizedek might have been called the king of righteousness, but can I tell you this? No man or no woman is truly righteous apart from the salvific work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word of God says in the book of Isaiah that our righteousness is as filthy rags before a holy God. No person can claim to be righteous enough to earn eternal life and earn the presence of God and earn relationship with God. That is the grace of God that brings that about through Jesus. But Jesus Christ is truly righteous. And He makes people righteous and He makes them at peace. The Lord Jesus also has an unending priesthood. He continues in this role. Uh, he does not have a beginning or end. It communicates His eternal nature. And so these things point to the superiority and greatness of Christ. Now, with that said, in these next few minutes, I want to give us three things we need to take away from this about Jesus. Three things we take away about Jesus. Number one, the Lord Jesus is the ultimate king of righteousness. These Christians were told to consider the greatness of Melchizedek, and again, he represented a type of priesthood. Listen, it was not that Jesus happened to take up Melchizedek's priesthood role. It was Melchizedek took up a Christly priesthood role. Jesus is the ultimate high priest. He is righteous. He is not only priest, but he is king. And these Hebrews needed to understand that the Old Testament prophets pointed to the fact that the Messiah would be a priest and king. Zechariah chapter 6 and verse 13 says, Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord, he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. So he's priest and king. But I, I want to focus in for a moment on this fact. He is the ultimate king of righteousness. The Lord Jesus Christ is completely righteous. He can do no wrong. He is absolutely perfect in all of his ways. And one day, being king, he will come and establish his kingdom, and his kingdom will be completely righteous. All evil will be eradicated. There will be no 
effects of sin and his kingdom, but it will be a righteous rule and reign. And sometimes, my brothers and sisters, I long for that day when he comes. I long for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to establish that righteous kingdom and to end the suffering of his people and establish his rule forever and eradicate the evil that exists all around us in this broken and sin-sick world. But as I contemplate the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, I also understand something that is meant for us to understand when we contemplate the coming of the Lord Jesus. It is not only a comfort for us, but the coming of the Lord Jesus is a motivator to us. And the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is to motivate us to live each day for Him so that when He comes, He finds us faithful. He finds us using our time wisely, using our gifts for His glory, being a witness for Him, being concerned about pursuing a righteous Christ-like conduct and honoring Him in all things and telling the world about the hope that is in Jesus Christ. I'm motivated by the understanding that Jesus Christ is coming again, the righteous king to rule in a righteous way. It motivates me to go out and tell those who don't know him and plead with them to repent and believe as the Lord commands them to do so. One day, he's coming. And those of us who are saved by him understand that we are taken out of the kingdom of darkness and we become beloved subjects of his kingdom. Those who reject him will be defeated, doomed rebels who will humble themselves in recognition that he is king over all, but they will be rightly assigned to everlasting condemnation because of their sinful rebellion and rejection of his grace. I'll tell you something else about him being king of righteousness. Understand that all who receive him by faith are made righteous in the sight of God. I said to you a moment ago that our best efforts as righteousness fall drastically short. Again, Isaiah says our righteousness is as filthy rags before a holy God. There's none of us who can be righteous on our own deeds. We need delivered from our unrighteousness and our sin. And, and only King Jesus can do that. The priest and king. Only he can do that. And when people come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, then <clears throat> what happens is he makes us righteous. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 and 22 says, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. Understand, because of what Jesus did in his righteous life on this earth, his substitutionary death to atone for sin, his subsequent resurrection from the dead to justify those who believe in him, all who do believe in him and are joined to Christ, their sins are forgiven. The righteousness that came through the righteous and holy life of the Lord Jesus Christ is given to those who are joined to Him, and we become justified, righteous in the sight of God. Praise His name.
<clears throat> Why would I ever want to walk away from him? A second thing we see here is the Lord Jesus is the ultimate king of peace. This is also messianic in nature, just like the fact that he's going to be a king and a righteous one is prophesied. So too is the fact that he is the king of peace. He's called the prince of peace in Isaiah 9, 6. And let me tell you something <clears throat> that we don't need to miss in the world we're in today. He's the king of peace because he allows peace with God and he allows us to experience the peace of God. But until a person is made righteous, there can be no peace. There can be no peace with God and there can be no peace of God in a person's life. When you're made righteous and then you begin to walk with Jesus every day, the peace of God is established in the hearts of those that he has redeemed. We have peace with God and we have the peace of God. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, the Bible says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That means we're no longer at enmity with God because of our sin. Uh, but we have a relationship with God. We're His sons and daughters. When we have peace with God again, we can have peace within. A third and final thing I'll show you about our Lord from this text is this. The Lord Jesus is the ultimate high priest. He is priest. Remember, that priest means a mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one way to Him. The Bible tells us in chapter 2, verse 17, that the Lord Jesus became the propitiation for our sins. Remember, that word speaks of what Jesus was able to do by His sinless life and His substitutionary death. What He did is He satisfied the justice of God toward our sin. Remember now, God just... Because he's just, he can't just say, okay, you know, you've sinned, just forget about it, you know, don't worry about it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you be mine anyway. He would be unjust. He's just, he's righteous, he's holy. And therefore, that sin has to be atoned for, has to be accounted for. But Jesus' death on our behalf satisfied that justice. That's what propitiation means. And so he did that, and then the Word of God says in chapter 4, verse 14 of the book of Hebrews, he passed through the heavens. Chapter 6, verse 19 and 20 says that he, as our forerunner, went behind the veil to the presence. So picture this. He ascends to heaven. He passes through the heavens Verse 14 of chapter 4 says, I've already talked about this when I preached that text. He leaves this atmospheric heaven. He leaves through the uh, interstellar space heavens to the heaven of heavens, the abode of God. He arrives there and he goes behind the veil. 
the actual throne room of God in the very presence of the God of the universe. And just like the high priest would do once a year when he would go in to atone for the sins of the people of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ came into the very presence of God the Father, presenting himself as the propitiation for sins. And those who by faith know Jesus Christ will follow him into the presence of God. We will be in his presence because of the work that Jesus Christ did on our behalf. And until we're with the Lord, the Bible tells us that he helps us. Chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 speak of the fact that he helps us. We can come, chapter 16, I mean, verse 16 of chapter 4, boldly before the throne to obtain mercy and find help in time of need. He knows our weaknesses, knows how to help us in this life, endure and be faithful to him. Chapter 7, verse 25 says he prays for us. Chapter uh, 7, verse 25 says he saves us to the uttermost. He secures us, accomplishes our salvation completely. That's what he does as the great high priest. So why would we, no matter how difficult the times are, want to stop serving him? The one who provides our hope and everyone else's hope if they respond to him and believe in him. We must endure. We must glorify him each day and depend on him to help us stay faithful to him and experience the spiritual blessings that he gives to us and know that he rewards the faithfulness of his people. We must be telling other people how they can have this great hope. You know, many people today are forming their own brand of Christianity. They're forming their own uh, little religious system, and they say that this is what Jesus would really do. They, they claim this is all of Christ, and yet it contradicts His plain sense teaching. And what they do is they want to form a, a brand of Christianity that's accepted by the culture. It makes them, you know, popular with the culture around them and accepted by them, but... That is exactly the opposite of what the Lord Jesus said would take place. He said that we would be hated by the world, the world meaning the world system, which is under the influence of Satan. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 says, Even the Lord called Satan the God of this age. Now, that does not mean that, he, that God is not sovereign over all things because He is, but He has allowed the enemy to have this level of control because of the fall and the curse. And so if we can go through life and our beliefs are never challenged by the culture around us and even opposed by the culture around us, we better check what we believe. You cannot tailor make our religious system by what the world is doing around us. We tailor make what we do and how we respond and what our worldview is by the interpretation of Scripture, the authority of Scripture. Fitting in with the culture and adopting the belief practices of the culture will not get us into the presence of God. Self-righteous advocacy, misplaced, uninformed, unbiblical senses of justice. Now, understand that God is a God of justice, and He tells us that we are to love and take care of the poor and the needy and the and uh, and and to and, and the orphan and the the widow and 
and we are to love our neighbors ourselves. We should be the most loving, most kind people to everyone around us you could ever think of. But the fact is today there is this misplaced, unbiblical form of advocacy where people gain a sense of self-righteousness from this. And what I would say is what they need is Jesus because that advocacy will not get a person into the presence of God. Adopting and embracing and carrying out the sexual designs that are embraced by the culture today and do that in the name of being loving and, and being exalted in your beliefs and understanding now, that, that will not get a person into the presence of God. Materialism, comfort, worldly pursuits and pleasures will not get a person into the presence of God. The King Jesus, the great high priest, can and will bring into His eternal presence all who repent, believe, and follow Him. He is our great King and priest. Maybe the Spirit of God says to some of us that we need to repent for chasing after the things of the world and abandoning Him. Maybe we're just strengthened today. You know, the Word of God will strengthen people. And as you hear a message like this, what it should do to those who are being faithful, it should be such a strengthening aspect to us. Stay faithful. Stay faithful. Endure. Endure. And for some, you need to receive the righteousness and the peace that can only come through forgiveness of sin and to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Maybe there's some online, maybe there's some in this room that need right now to say, I need Jesus, I need His forgiveness, I need Him to make me righteous, I, I need desperately His forgiveness and the reconciliation with God that comes through Him. Today, if you'll repent and believe, and repent just simply means you turn away from sin and you surrender yourself to Him in faith, He will forgive you and He will make you righteous and He will change you. You'll be born again. And I would love to talk to you about that, and we're going to stand to sing in a moment. You just come to me and say, I, I'd like to know Jesus as my Savior. Many of us might just need to pray. God's spoken to us, to, and, and He's using this to help us endure in our walk with Him and endure as a witness for Christ in this day that we're in. What a time to be alive, though. What a time to represent God to the world. There's such desperate need in our culture. And for such a time as this, God has us here to do just that. For some, you might need to join this church or you might need to make public uh, this week. Maybe there's a VBS decision and you want to make that public that you've come to Christ this past week. I'd invite you to come. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this word, this message. And I pray, Lord, right now that you, Father, will... Just continue to speak powerfully, Lord, to the hearts and lives of people. And I pray we'll just respond to what you want us to do right now. Lord, I pray you make it clear. And I pray you've strengthened your people. I pray that you have called people who are unsaved to you today. And I pray they surrender to you.
I pray, Lord God, you'll work in a mighty way right now. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.